So we all have things that we are good at, things that we're passionate about, things that we enjoy, and things that we uh, feel knowledgeable enough about to talk about. And we talk about them a lot because we know about them, right? We're passionate about them. We like them. We all, we all have those things. Now, on the reverse of that, we also have those things that we don't know that much about. We're not passionate about it. Maybe we're just not well educated on it, whatever that may be. We all have those things that we don't know much about and therefore do not like to try to talk about. For me, that's going to be something like politics. It's going to be uh, popular music. It's going to be math, psychology, science, things like that. Things that I know, knowing myself, I just don't know a whole lot about. And so if asked to speak about them, um, I'm going to have to uh, go by the age-old strategy of fake it till you make it. So we all, we all know what that's like, right, to have that thing that you just, just don't know. It's not something you're comfortable with, and so you try to avoid talking about it. But what if you were put in a situation where you absolutely had to speak about a topic or topics that you knew you just didn't know very well, that you had no business talking about? And when I say talking about it, I don't mean just like in a regular conversation with your friends or family or whatever. I mean, you have got to give a graduate level presentation to a room full of people who are expecting you to make them smarter about this topic. How would you feel in that moment where you knew you had no way out of giving this presentation? There was no way for you to avoid it. You were going to have to deliver this talk. Would you feel nervous? Probably, yeah. You'd be afraid. You'd probably be wondering, how in the world am I going to pull this off? A whole gamut of things would be going through your mind, uh, not one of them probably being confidence that you could do it. As you're studying, as you're looking over papers, it's probably looking like a foreign language to you. It may actually be a foreign language. That may be your thing. I don't know. But you're looking at it going, I have no idea where to even begin. I have no idea where to start with this. You're probably increasing in anxiety. You're becoming all the more nervous as you're getting ready. Well, then the day comes. You go to the place where you're to deliver this graduate-level lecture. You're standing at the podium. You're watching people file in, and they're looking at you like, yeah, that person, they know what's up. They're going to help me today. All the while, you're sitting there thinking, why are you here? Please go away, because you're scared to death. You have no idea how they are going to get anything out of this because you know it's going to be terrible. The moment's drawing near. You're watching the minutes tick down on the clock. You're getting more and more afraid, and then it happens. A preeminent expert on that topic walks into the room. And your first thought is probably like, can I, can I hide? Like, you're in here? You're going to have to listen to me give this talk? You need to be up here talking. You need to be the one doing it. But here they come. They're actually coming towards you. They're not going to find a seat. They're coming to you. And they come up to you and they hand you an earpiece. And they say, I'm here. And I'm going to help you. Put this in. I will tell you everything that you need to know. Yeah. So you take your deep breath and you start. 
you get to going. And sure enough, true to their word, everything that you need to say, they tell you. All right, you need to start with this illustration or tell this kind of story that will set the tone for your talk. Hey, you need to make this argument. Now present this side of it and this side of it. Now counter it with this and that. Hey, they really need this piece of information, so show them this slide. Show them that. All the while, you're giving the talk according to their instruction. And sure enough, it gets to the end, and people are walking out going, that was really good, thank you. Never knowing that you had a helper in your ear guiding you through the whole thing. Now the reality is, none of us are probably ever going to be asked to deliver a graduate-level lecture on a subject that you are not a well-known expert in that field. But, in Christ, you have received instruction to do a work that is well beyond any of our abilities to carry out. But do we ever just stop and think about our helplessness to complete the task that's been given to us? Yeah, prob- probably so. We probably know that feeling. And yet, in the text that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus is going to tell the disciples that whoever believes in him will do the things that he did. And that is nothing, if not a rather daunting task. But thankfully, he doesn't leave us on our own to accomplish the work that he's commanded us to be about. So with that, I want you to go ahead and turn to John chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 12 to 17, but first let me pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time and this space where we can come together just to look into your word, which reveals to us all we need to know about you. You are holy, you are right, and you are good. And thus these things are true of your word. May it be your word that shapes our minds and our attitudes and our affections today and every day. Be glorified in this place this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So John 14, starting in verse 12, it says this, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So I think there are two things that we ought to take out of this text. And the first is that believers do the works of Christ because of love for Christ, out of love for Jesus. So if you're familiar with this passage, then you probably know that we have just jumped right into the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples. Uh, They are in the upper room. They're in Jerusalem. Remember, they have come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. You might remember the account where Jesus tells the, the apostles, hey, go find this guy and tell him that room that you have. The teacher needs it, and they go and they tell him that, and the guy's like, oh, okay, sure, yeah, 
here you go. Here's a place to, where, you can, where you can meet. And so they go there, they have eaten, and they are uh, hanging out, having a conversation. Now, if we were to go back a few verses, then there would probably be some other things that you're uh, familiar with uh, in this text. You've got Jesus who is washing the disciples' feet. That's happened. You know, that's that whole deal where Jesus is washing their feet, and Peter says, no, Lord, you'll never do that for me. And Jesus is like, if I don't, then you have no part in me. And Peter's like, well, then wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, no, just your feet. That's all you need because Peter was, was, was missing the mark. They've also, this is also the place where Jesus has told them, oh, hey, by the way, one of you is about to betray me. And they're looking at one another like, not me, so it's got to be you. Is it me? Who, who is it? And Jesus tells them, no, it's the one who dips his bread in the bowl after me. And Judas does. And Jesus looks at Judas and says, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. And Judas leaves. And they still have no idea why Judas is leaving. And then there's also the whole bit about, Lord, I, I want to go wherever you go. Peter tells him that. As Jesus begins talking about the fact that he's getting ready to leave, and he looks to Peter and says, you're going to deny me three times. And then it happens. So in all of this, kind of building through all of this to where we are, Jesus has been preparing them that he is getting ready to leave. And where he is going, they cannot come. And so the disciples are kind of curious about this, as I think anybody would. And so they start asking him, well, where are you going? To which leads them to ask the question, well, if you're going away, how do we get where you're going? And he delivers John, what we have in John 14, 6, that he is the way to where they desire to be with him. And so then coming into our text for this morning, Jesus says something that is really kind of interesting. He tells the disciples, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and even greater works. Than these will he do. So let's consider that for just a second. What are the works that Jesus did? Well, he healed people who could not walk and healed people who could not see. He cured a woman who had a bleeding disorder for 12 years and who had spent her entire life savings on doctors trying to be cured and they couldn't do the work and yet she touches just the hem of his garment, and is cured. We saw last week from Pastor Michael's sermon that he cast out demons, demons that were so horrifying people could not pass by them. He healed people of diseases, and he raised people from the dead, which by my count is three, and that's not even counting his own resurrection. So are, are these the works that he is saying that his followers should be doing? I'm going to venture to guess that if that's what Jesus meant, then all of us in this room are behind the eight ball. But I don't think that's what he meant when he referred to the works that he did. I think what you have to do is I think you have to take into account what was being accomplished through the works. What was the message? What was the meaning behind the works that he did? Well, for starters, he was bearing witness to his identity as the Christ, the one who was sent into the world to take away sins. And with the works came the message, repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. 
But then along with that, through the things he did, he taught people what it was like to live as a citizen within the kingdom of heaven. He showed them what the kingdom of heaven is like, what, is, what characterizes the kingdom. His works showed the power of God over sin, the power of God over the evil forces at work in the world, and the power of God over death. These works show that the kingdom will be empty of the effects of sin and death following their final and their complete defeat at the end of the age because Christ our King reigns in authority over them. His works show the mercy and the grace of God towards sinful man. We definitely see this in his healing, but how much more in his forgiving people of their sins. In all that he said and did, Jesus taught about who God is and what it's like to be a citizen in his kingdom living under his rule and his reign. So then, what works will believers do that he did? Well, that's the work that goes into everything that goes into declaring that the kingdom has come with the advent of Christ. This includes gospel proclamation. It includes going and making disciples of Jesus. But it also includes showing what the kingdom is like, what it is like to live as a citizen in the kingdom of God through acts of mercy and kindness among all the nations of the earth. Now, yes, certainly, Jesus did these things far better than we ever will because we are still hampered by our sin. And yet, Jesus says that his disciples' works will be greater. How? How is that even possible? And I would argue with you that it's because of how far-reaching they will be. We have to remember, Jesus was fully man. He was bound to a particular place. He dwelled in a particular place. He physically interacted with a small number of people, relatively speaking, in a tiny portion of the world at a particular time in history. However, his followers now impact the whole world as he works through those who believe in him. I think this then gives us the context to understand rightly verses 13 and 14, where he promises to do whatever it is that we ask in his name. Now, when he says that, he's not just saying, hey, if you ask for the Lamborghini, if you ask for the A in that really difficult class, if you ask me to prosper you in your business, or if you uh, ask me for everyone in your family to always and only be healthy. If you ask me those things in my name and you have just enough faith in me, then I will do it. That is not at all what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here are the prayers of those who believe in him for things that are associated with the greater works of spreading his kingdom far and wide. And so I think that should give us pause. And we should ask the question, what are we praying for? What is it that we go to the Lord in prayer for? That's not to say that we should not pray that God would help 
and even heal those who are sick. It is right and it is good for us as a body of believers to pray for Doug and Kathy, to pray for Pat Gray as her daughter Denise suffers from cancer once more. We should pray and pray and pray with the Lord on their behalf. But in all things, in everything that we pray for, I think we have to ask ourselves, is the center of my prayer a desire for the worship of God to spread wherever I am and to the ends of the earth? What motivates my prayer? And if I'm desiring in my prayers for the worship of God to spread to the ends of the earth, then I think that's going to lead me to ask God for things like wisdom and faith to better understand and believe His Word. We're going to ask and plead with God for opportunities to share the gospel. And yes, I'll even argue that we will ask God for resources, but resources not to be consumed and used solely for our own enjoyment, but for the purpose of our going out into the world to, to, to proclaim the good news of Christ and to be used to send out others to the ends of the world to proclaim the goodness of Jesus, to share the gospel among the nations. The things asked for that he is referring to here are those things that line up with his desires and the Father's desires. Again, these are things that bring glory to the Father through his being worshipped throughout the world. And I think this is all built on Jesus' declaration from the beginning of John 14 that he is going to prepare a place for his people to dwell with him, for the people of God to dwell with God. This hits on a major theme running throughout the Bible. God bringing to himself a people that will be his, who he is purifying and who he will dwell among. Jesus is the culmination of this work. He is the one who would lay down his life for the many, who has laid down his life for the many, that they may be pardoned of their sins through repentance and faith and brought into the family and people of God. He will then return one day for this people, bringing them into the presence of the Father, who will forever dwell among his redeemed and purified people, having purified them through the shed blood of Jesus. And he tells us that as we wait, as we long for that day, we will join in the work of calling those who are outside the kingdom to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. And so that, I think, brings us to verse 15, where Jesus tells the disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we know Jesus liked to talk in parables, right? And he was very, very good at it. But this isn't a parable. He's not mincing words. He's not trying to hide what he's saying. Speaking as plainly as possible about what true saving faith produces in the heart of a person. Love for Jesus. And love that is expressed through obedience to Jesus. 
This love for Jesus produces desires for the things that he desired, chief among them the glory of the Father. And so sharing in this desire for the glory of God, that must mean loving the things of God. And loving the things of God must mean faithfulness to the commands of Jesus. And so it's in our our love-fueled obedience to Jesus that we go about the work of spreading the news of the kingdom. But this isn't just another call to be more intentional about sharing the gospel with other people. It's definitely not less than that. But rather than just being about the scale on which the gospel is proclaimed, this is also about the nations bearing witness to an otherworldly morality as a kingdom ethic is lived out in the world by followers of Jesus. For example, take something he said just a few verses earlier in John. In John 13, 34, and 35, we read that the world will know Jesus' disciples by the way that they love one another. Well, how did Jesus love his disciples? Let's start there. Well, he laid down his life for them. He laid down his life for those whom he called his friends. But now keep in mind, these friends of his that he laid down his life for ran for the hills just as soon as he was arrested, with one of them standing nearby denying that he ever knew him. Now forget about the apostles, move past that, consider all of those whom Christ has laid down his life for. How does the Bible describe us? His enemy, alienated and hostile towards him, outside of Christ. And yet he sacrificed his life for us, that through repentance and faith, we might become a friend of God, a child of God, brought into his family. His love... For his people is an unconditional love. It's not stained by the sinful impulses that we have to hold grudges, to allow bitterness to fester and grow, and to be divided over slights both perceived and real. And so the type of love that Christ has shown to his church must now characterize the relationships that exist between Christians within the church. We have to be a people who forgives quickly and freely, who refuse to hold grudges, who graciously disagree on the things that we can disagree on, and who continually sacrifice for the good of those around us. But of course, this love, it has to spill over into how we interact with the world around us. We are gracious and we are patient towards those who are difficult to get along with. We seek the good of the community around us, giving up our time and giving up our resources to benefit others in hopes that they would flourish. But it starts within the family of faith. If you cannot sacrificially love and serve the people within the family of God, how can you expect that you will do it for those outside of it? But how we relate to other people That's only one part of these greater works. If we are going to be the missional people of God, seeking to make Christ and his kingdom known to those outside the church, then it is going to require a pursuit of holiness that is fueled by our love for Jesus. 
you simply cannot expect that you will be effective in going out into the world and making disciples of Jesus if you are unwilling to strive for holiness in your everyday life. If you are lazy and apathetic about holiness, then no matter how hard you work to convince yourself that you love Jesus, your unwillingness to obey his commands preaches a different message. If you do not desire personal holiness, you cannot do the greater works that Jesus has said those who believe in him will do. On the other hand, this isn't just a list of do's and don'ts. Again, what does he say? If you love me, you will keep my commands. Love is what motivates our obedience to Jesus. It's not about checking boxes off of a list. Like, woohoo, I read my Bible four times this week. All right, I made it to Sunday service and bonus points because I hit Wednesday night. Hey, look at me, I didn't say mean things to that person that I just really don't like. I mean, doing these things are well and good, and yes, things we ought to strive for and are even commanded of us to be about. But they do not a Christian make. If that's your idea of what makes a Christian a Christian, then you are believing a false gospel that is built on the idea that we are responsible for our own justification. We are not and cannot. This only comes through faith in the risen Christ who was slain for our sins. But this is a hard thing. It's not like we can just wake up in the morning and decide that we can, through our own willpower, love Jesus more than we did the day before and desire even more obedience to him. Listen, loving Jesus is not something that we can just conjure up within ourselves. And if that's true, then it means that we're just not going to be able to plunge headlong into faithful obedience to him either. And yet he's told us that if we believe in him, we will do the greater works than even he did. And he has said that if we love him, we will do all of the things that he said to do. Like I said, this is a hard thing. It's impossible for us to do on our own. But thankfully, Christ our Lord knows this too. And so that leads to the second thing that I think we ought to see in the text this morning, which is that believers do the works of Christ through the enabling of the Spirit. Now, I want you to just think for a second about all that Christ has laid out to this point. What all has Jesus said of what those who believe in him will do? People who believe in him will do the things he did. Does the weight of that hit you? I hope it does. It should. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to try to do this on our own? Actually, I bet you can. Because if you're like me, you find yourself attempting to follow Christ faithfully all of your own power and in the strength of your own flesh regularly. But what characterizes that? Is it not wrong motivations? 
like fear or pride. And let me ask you, when you attempt to serve the Lord with wrong motivations, it catches up with you, doesn't it? Maybe it doesn't immediately blow up in your face, but if you're lucky, all that you end up feeling is emptiness and as if you have been drained because there is no contentment. There is no joy for you because you have not been walking in spirit-led obedience to Christ. But our sinful flesh is always working to corrupt even the good things, the Christ-exalting things that we desire to do. So if left to ourselves, would we ever be able to do the works that Jesus did, much less greater works? No. And we're fooling ourselves if we think otherwise. And yet, I think we know that. But we still try to live holy and righteous lives and be faithful disciple-makers on our own all the same. Let me ask, do you ever find yourself puffed up with pride? Pride in yourself because you held your tongue in a situation where you normally would have popped off at the mouth. Or maybe it's a situation where you're prone to lust and yet you kept your thoughts in check. Listen, it's fine to acknowledge and be happy about the changes that God is bringing about in your life. Quite honestly, I think it would be weird if you were not happy and filled with joy over the things that God was doing in your life where you could see that He is at work in you. And yes, living a life of holiness, that does require effort on our part. It doesn't just happen to us. But when our happiness over progress in holiness turns into self-exaltation, look at me, look what I did, look how far I have come, look how far I have brought myself, that's sin, and it must be repented of. It's equally foolish to think that the conversion of sinners or growth in the life of someone that you are discipling has come about or will come about because you worked hard and you knew all the right things to say. I mean, consider 1 Corinthians 3. We've been studying this in our small groups. What does Paul teach in 1 Corinthians 3? He says that those who teach, the ones who teach, are not the ones who give the growth. This is exclusively a work of God. The reality is none of us have the power or the influence to truly convert someone to saving faith. So let me ask, why put pressure on yourself to get everything right or feel that you have to have the answer to every question before sharing the gospel with a coworker or a classmate or a neighbor? Do you need to have the points of the gospel down and right? Yeah, you do. But you don't have to know the answer to every question that they may ask you. So why let that fear drive you from proclaiming the words of life that are the gospel that you do know? And if you do share your faith, and God is gracious to bring someone from death to life, how arrogant is it to act as if their salvation came about because of our knowledge or our speaking abilities? Again, be happy if you are faithful in disciple-making. And rejoice in the Lord if someone comes to faith or you see someone maturing in their faith as you spend time investing in them, discipling them, encouraging them in Christ. But no matter the result, 
We should have joy because of our being obedient to Christ, rejoicing in His being glorified through the faithfulness that He has cultivated in our lives. See, our joy is not tied to the result. Our joy is tied to the act of obedience. Our happiness is rooted in pursuing Christ. Our happiness is, result, is a result of loving Him. He is our joy. And so it makes us happy to pursue the things that make us happy, which is Jesus and striving for obedience to him. Our joy is tied to obedience to him. But even then, when we desire to obey Jesus because it makes us happy, obedience is still really sinking hard. And if the commandments that that Jesus gives here where he says, those who believe in me will do the things that I did. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If that was left up to us, if he said, peace out, now y'all handle it, those would be really, really burdensome commands. There would be no possibility for joy in them because they would only ever be a crushing weight around our necks. What would be left? Only fear and trembling always afraid that we had gotten something wrong because we would have always gotten something wrong. That's what makes what Jesus says in verses 16 and 17 just so remarkable. Not only are our sins forgiven in Christ, but he sends the spirit of truth to dwell in us, enabling us to know and believe truth, but also to empower us to actually do the work that Christ did through his ministry. Jesus, returning to the Father, asks him to send to us his Spirit. I think we should make a connection there back to verses 13 and 14. Remember, that deals with what are we asking for? Well, here Jesus gives us an example of the things that he is asking for. What did we say? Our asking should be lined up with things that bring glory to the Father, that spread worship of the Father. What is Jesus asking for? Things that bring glory to the Father, things that spread worship of the Father. May our asking be in line with his. So Jesus returning to the Father asks him to send to us his Spirit. And in the Father so doing this, we have a helper who is now called to come alongside us to lead us in loving Jesus, knowing his commands, and being obedient to them. We don't miss that. Jesus tells the apostles what his followers will do, but then he follows that up with, Hey, I'm going to send to you the Spirit of truth who will never leave you will in fact be in you. Disciples of Jesus will know truth. We will know how to love and how to obey Jesus because of this helper. Now, depending on what translation you're using, the word that I read there is helper in verse 16. You might read that as advocate, counselor, comforter. I think you could probably argue um, for any, any of those. I think some might be better than others. But the idea here, the idea that we have to grasp is what Jesus is communicating here is that he's going to send someone who's going to come alongside believers to help them. This is someone who comes alongside to help. I mean, think about the end of the Great Commission. What does Jesus say there? He promises, I will never leave or forsake you. And then he promises here in this chapter, in verse 18, that he will not leave us as orphans. He's not going to leave us to our own devices. How good is that? And he accomplishes this through the sending of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth who dwells in us. 
But our indwelling helper is far greater than just some preeminent expert in some specific field who comes in to help us with a single task and hands us an earpiece to do it. We have the very Spirit of God living within us to aid us in obedience to Christ. And what He aids us in is the mission given to us by Christ from helping us grow in holiness, by maturing our faith, to enabling us to be effective in the making much of Christ wherever we are and to the ends of the earth. Throughout the, the remainder of this conversation, remember I said we just kind of jumped into the middle of a conversation between Jesus and his, his disciples. And so throughout the remainder of it, now that Jesus has introduced this helper, Jesus is going to kind of continually bring up the helper and unpack a little bit more of what it is this helper will do. How will this helper do um, aid these disciples, aid his followers in obedience to him? There's a couple of verses where Jesus brings that up. He says in John 14, 26, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In John 15, 26, He will bear witness about me. In John 16, 8, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In John 16, 13, and 14, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus knows the task that He leaves His disciples with are far beyond our ability to carry out. But instead of a slap on the back, a pat on the head, and a, hey, go get them, Jesus asked the Father to send us the Spirit of truth, the Spirit that knows the very mind of God, to be in us and to be with us. The Spirit, Jesus says, cannot be received by the world because the Spirit proclaims the true things of God. And now I do think that, that begs a question. Does that mean that non-Christians are just utterly clueless about what makes up the gospel? I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's true. I'm sure you're like me, and you know people who are not Christians who will tell you they're not Christians but can articulate, well, this is what you guys believe. They can lay out the pieces of the gospel. But let's be honest. This isn't just something that applies to the great out there beyond the church. Churches are filled with people who profess Jesus and can probably explain the gospel to you in a nutshell, but who are not following Jesus. Amen. Jesus himself affirms this when he says in Matthew 7 that on that day, the day where he comes to judge the world for his sin, there will be many who say, well, Lord, didn't we do this? And didn't we do that in your name? And he'll send them away from his presence, saying... I never knew you, and you didn't know me. So with that in mind, I think it's clear that the world not receiving the spirit of truth means not believing what the spirit bears witness to. More specifically, who the spirit bears witness to. Jesus, and that he is the Christ. You see, worldly people might be able to identify what it is Christians believe. And may even be able to repeat it. But saying it and believing it are two totally different things. And so it is in the Spirit that knowledge and belief 
come together to bring about saving faith. And it's where knowledge and faith come together to produce saving faith that obedience to Christ is born out of love for Christ in the lives of those who believe in Him. And so it's for this purpose that Jesus asks the Father and the Father sends the Spirit that we might know Him. And knowing Him, we go into the world seeking to see His glory praised to the ends of the earth, beginning wherever we are. Think about it. If people outside of Christ do not know the truth, then how are they going to know it if they are not told it? I mean, Paul deals with this in Romans 10, right? How will they know if they do not hear, and how will they hear if someone does not go and tell them? We have been empowered by the Spirit to go into the world and tell those who do not know the truth, the truth of the gospel. But does it do us any good if our message does not line up with the way that we live our own lives? It doesn't suggest that we believe the message we're preaching if we aren't living according to it, does it? And so with that, considering the magnitude of the task that has been given to disciples of Jesus and the lengths to which he has gone to accomplish this task, I think it's right to ask the question, if you say that you believe that by faith the Spirit dwells in you and is at this moment teaching you truth about God, about His Word, about His Christ, and is leading you to obey His commands. Let me ask, how do you respond when you are made aware of sin in your life? How do you respond when someone questions you about sin that they have noticed in your life? Are you argumentative? Do you attack that person? Do you begin pointing out flaws in them? Do you try to justify your sins? Do you start coming up with all the reasons why, yeah, you know what, I guess I probably shouldn't have done that, but here's, here's why I did it, so it's really okay. Do you deny that sin is present? Do you refuse to acknowledge the sin that others see in you? Saying things like, no, 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 no I don't think God's like that. No, 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 God wouldn't call that a, a sin because that makes me happy and God wants me to be happy. What about your response when you're convicted of sins as you study in private or as you hear the word preached? Do you walk away from sermons convicted of your sin, convinced of it, desiring to repent only to stop thinking about it by the time lunch is over, never making an effort to walk in holiness? Do you put down the Bible Do you pray, oh God, take away my desires for sin, only to come up with reasons later on why it's probably okay for you just to keep on keeping on and doing the things you've been doing? You see, sin is persistent. It's not a lazy enemy who puts up no struggle when we recognize it or are made aware of it. While we remain in the flesh, our desires for sin will remain. When it's exposed, it's not going to just lie down and die for you. It's going to fight to maintain control over you and over the things that you desire and over the things that you do. 
But do we respond when the moment comes and by God's grace, your sin is exposed for what it is, an effort of your flesh to hinder and keep you from doing the spirit-empowered works commanded by Christ, do you deny it, turn from it, run from it, and ignore that it's there? God is gracious. You're never going to be perfect this side of eternity. That's why the, the reminder that is, that is there for us in Romans 8.1, that therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's such a comforting verse. But that's also not an excuse to ignore or dismiss or argue away the presence of sin in your life when the Spirit confronts you through the Word of God or through the people of God. Christ has asked, And the Father has given the spirit of truth that we may believe. And believing may be faithful to see worship of God spread wherever we are through our obedience to see the kingdom furthered out of a desire to see the worship of God spread to the ends of the earth. But if we're unwilling to humbly receive correction when we are in sin, it will at best hinder us from being faithful to make much of Christ among the nations, to be obedient to do the works that he did. Jesus says, if we love him, we will keep his commands. May we respond accordingly, repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ to make us into his image. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for time in your word. And we thank you that you are gracious to us to make known where we are in error. We thank you for your word, O oh God, that leads us to identify sin as your spirit works through your word, your living and active word, to point us to where we are coming up short. And oh God, we do come up short. But praise, praise be to you that you have sent your son into the world that though we come up short, we can be made whole and made right, forgiven of our sins in Christ. How merciful and gracious you are, God. So, oh Lord God, be merciful and gracious to us. Help us to see our sin. Help us to respond rightly to our sin. Oh God, change our desires and our affections as individuals and as a church, that our affections and our desires would be for your glory, and that everything that we do, that everything that we say, everything that we are about, would be to see the gospel spread here, there, and everywhere that your name would be glorified. Pray this all in Jesus' name.